Greetings in our Lord Jesus Christ, and welcome to the audio ministry of Christ Church of Livingston County. The following are three excerpts from a Covenant Renewal worship service led by Pastor Dirk DeWinkle, teaching elder at Christ Church. We trust you will be edified and ministered to by the Holy Spirit through this audio recording. Call the confession this morning is from Proverbs 20, verse 19. He who goes about as a talebearer reveals secrets. Therefore, do not associate with one who flatters with his lips. First, a clarification. The Hebrew for one who flatters with his lips is more accurately rendered one who is simple or foolish with his lips. So do not associate with one who is foolish with his lips. Obviously, this would include a flatterer, but the application is broader than flattery alone. This proverb has to do with the sins of gossip, divisiveness, and pride. The first part of this proverb is a simple statement, rather matter of fact. A talebearer bears tales. Secrets are not safe with somebody who doesn't know how to keep them. That is why we are given the command in the second part, don't associate with the gossip. There is wisdom in silence. There is understanding in keeping confidence. Those who we associate with and those who we confide in, those who are closest closest to us, have the most power to damage and hurt us. The reason that nobody trusts a blabberer is because information is power. A talebearer makes his victims vulnerable. And the only defense against the talebearer is to keep your distance from him. So wisdom tells us here that we should not associate with he whose lips are foolish. Ultimately, these kinds of people are divisive. They are puffed up by pride and they seek to build themselves up by demeaning others or sharing private information. They're either jealous of their perceived competitors or proud of their knowledge. And their pride drives them to speak foolishly. Unfortunately, the consequences of this behavior almost always destroys community, friendship, and peace. Instead of love, joy, peace, gentleness, kindness, and self-control, the fruit that comes is envy, bitterness, spite, hatred, and jealousy. Paul confirms the wisdom of this proverb when he tells Timothy to reject a divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. The virtue of being in the know is negligible, but the virtue of controlling the tongue is divine. If anyone does not stumble in word, he is a perfect man, able also to bridle the whole body. James 3, verse 2. This reminds us of our need to confess our sins, so if you're willing and able, please kneel. So far in Acts, Luke has narrated the Ascension, Pentecost, 
the birth of the church, and the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and two different trials before the Sanhedrin, trials of the apostles. In, in the course of his narration, he seems to be interweaving several different threads. First, he wants us to know, he wants to give us a knowledge of events, a basic what happened, how the church came into being. This involves the work of the Holy Spirit, powerful miracles, the spread of the gospel, and the declaration of it with boldness by the apostles. Next, Luke tells us of the, op- the opposition of the gospel, opposition to the gospel faced in the streets at Pentecost, in the temple when Peter and John were arrested, and before the Sanhedrin in the two trials. And interspersed with these threads is a description of the development of the church life. Life in the upper room, describing the sacrificial giving of Barnabas, the fear of God brought about by the death of Ananias and Sapphira, and the unity and hope that the gospel brought to the church community. And today we pick up on this thread again with the circumstance circumstances surrounding the calling of the first deacons. As the church grew, it grew with people. But when you have people, you have people problems. It's like when you go to math class, you have math problems. It was only natural that the church would experience some growing pains. So we start in Acts 6, verse 1. Now in those days, when the number of the disciples was multiplying, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists, because their widows were neglected in the daily distribution. Our text introduces to us two distinct groups within the church, the Hebrews and the Hellenists. Both of these groups were made up of Jews. The word Hellenists comes from, our, from, the, word, from the Greek term for the country of Greece. The country of Greece in Greek is called Hellas. And uh, the Hellenists were largely comprised of Jews from the diaspora. In the decades and centuries prior to A.D. 30, the Jews had been dispersed broadly from Babylon all the way to Rome, from Asia Minor and Eastern Europe, all the way down to Egypt and Northern Africa. And all of these regions had been conquered by Alexander the Great, and his conquest established the Greek Empire. Or, and in the Greek Empire, there was a lingua franca. Uh, uh, there was an international common language. And that, that language was Greek. It was the, the language used for government. It was the language used for, um, for trading. It was, it was just it was the common, common language. It's like when John and Scott go to China, they speak English because that's, that's the, the, the current lingua franca. The Jews who lived in the diaspora would would congregate in their local synagogues, but they spoke Greek, and they read from the Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint. And the fact that there was a relatively sizable group of Hellenists in Jerusalem is due to the fact that the events in Jerusalem, which we've been studying since the beginning of Acts, all happened shortly after Pentecost, or or during Pentecost, and that was one of the three main feasts in the Jewish calendar. So many faithful Jews would have traveled to Jerusalem to participate in the feast, and hearing the gospel and seeing the work of God in the church by the Holy Spirit, they converted and they joined the church. 
And moreover, some of the local Jews in Jerusalem had political and financial cause to be Hellenists. The Sadducees were fairly Hellenistic because they, were, they wanted to have favor with the Romans. And, and the Romans uh, appreciated the, the Greek lifestyle, the Greek culture. And so the Sadducees uh, wanted to have a good, good reputation with the Romans, and the Romans protected the Sadducees hold, because the Romans protected the Sadducees' hold on the temple and the leadership of Israel. So the Sadducees were, were favorable towards the Greek culture. In contrast to the Hellenists or the Hebrews, and this was the majority group in the young church, primarily because they were the locals. They were the people that, that were Hebrews. They were the people from Israel. Hebrews spoke the Aramaic language. It was a dialect of Hebrew. Mostly they lived in Israel and they used the Hebrew scriptures. And moreover, they were, they were more strict in their observances of the Torah, the Old Testament law. And naturally, because of their differences in culture, because the one group that live as Jews classically or or conservatively, the other group lived as as, as modern, contemporary Jews. Um, there were tensions between the Hebrews and the Hellenists prior to the, the coming along of the church. The Hebrews likely considered the Hellenist culture to be a, a watering down of Judaism. They, they figured that they were under Roman rule because the, the, they, the Jews weren't living faithfully. And in the meantime, the Hellenists likely thought that the Hebrews were culturally backwater or outdated. They said, you need to catch up with the times. In some ways, these tensions were similar to the differences between the Sadducees and the Pharisees. The Hebrews and the Hellenists should have left these problems at the door, nailed to the cross when they entered the church. But like I said before, when you have people, you have people problems. And they brought them along with them into the church. Up until now, the church has been described consistently as being unified. And here we have the first dissent. There arose a complaint. The daily distribution was the means... Wait, well, well first, a, a, better, uh, a better translation of the word complaint. In the text it reads... Uh, in the English, our tra translation, there arose a complaint against the Hebrews by the Hellenists. A better translation than complaint would be a murmuring. Uh, there was discontent within the ranks. This, this wasn't an outright accusation. There wasn't an open fight between the Hellenists and the Hebrews. Mostly there was a perception among the, the Hellenists that, the, that their widows were being wronged in the daily, in the daily distribution. The daily distribution was the means by which those who were poor uh, and destitute were cared for by the church. Before converting to Christianity, the, widow, the widows and the poor uh, would have gone to the temple to receive food or financial assistance. Um, but after converting, that was no longer available to them, so they, then they would go to the apostles, to the leaders of the church. The apostles were Hebrews. We have, we have the two groups, the Hellenists and the Hebrews. The apostles were Hebrews, and their natural support structure would have been comprised of those from their community. They, they grew up in Israel. They, they were connected to the people of Israel, the Hebrews, um, other Hebrews. And, and, and as they, they grew in power and authority, and, and God gave them so much wealth and so much, so much 
duties, so many, so much work to do, they they used the support structures that they knew. They they would have assigned their 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 friends, their 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 disciples, the people that they were close to, to to be doing the work of the church. In doing this, they weren't being stingy in their giving. They weren't, you know, purposely withholding from the Hellenists. Um, they, in fact, in our text so far, it's, it's been very clear to communicate that, that nobody had need. The church was, was a community where everyone was of one accord. Everybody was unified. Um, it's been very self-evident in the text that, that this is a new problem. This isn't something that's been existing because of, of a partiality within, within the leadership. Uh, and and the, the issue couldn't have been uh, intentional de- deprivation. It, it, the, the complaint, if it was that, if it was the apostles really trying to stick it to the Hellenists, if the Hebrews were trying to, 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 to make, a, make a, a point of not giving to the Hellenists, it would have been an accusation. It would have been a fight. It would have been, it would have been a real problem within the church. Um, but it, it, it can't have been that, and that's because we see that the problem wasn't that. It was there was it was discontent. It was a murmuring. It was there was there was discontent, but it was it was under the radar. It was still under the surface. The the foreign Hellenists weren't plugged in the way the locals would have been, and in the midst of the multitudes, the multitudes of new believers. You imagine, you know, in the course of a few weeks, they went from zero, from 120 to 3,000 to 5,000, then they stopped counting. There's just boatloads of Christians that, that are all coming to the apostles for 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 spiritual nourishment, and and their poor, their needy, were coming for physical nourishment. It would it would have been a simple matter to overlook the foreign poor, the people who didn't have connections within their community. And so we have the occasion for this murmuring. Now here it's worth noting that the disciples were wise men. They're wise men, and we know this because they kept their ear to the ground. They, 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 they were aware of the state of their flock. They, they understood that there was an issue that here that needed to be addressed. It's to their credit that this issue didn't rise to the level of discord, division, or infighting within the new church. Remember, they were, they were busy men. They were praying and teaching. The church had grown overnight from that 120 to many thousands, and now it's simply called a multitude. On top of this, they'd been given power and money by, by their disciples, and they were busy preaching and teaching and healing, and they'd just been tried and beaten by the Sanhedrin. And here they were, preaching a gospel of forgiveness of sins, the, the kingdom of Christ, the unity in the Spirit, and they stop everything to address this first instance of administrative problems in regard to the church. And here we see the Apostles' solution. Uh, verses 2 to 4. Then the twelve summoned the multitude of the disciples and said, It is not desirable that we should leave the word of God and serve tables. Therefore, brethren, seek out from among you seven men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, whom we may appoint over this business. But we will give ourselves continually to prayer and to the ministry of the word. 
The first thing we see here is that in their wisdom, the first thing they do is call together a council. Because in the multitude of counselors, there's wisdom. They, they call the multitude together, and they, 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 they announce the problem. And the next thing that they do in their wisdom is that they recognize that it would not be smart, it would not be wise for them to shoulder the burden themselves. They, they could have said, okay, there's just one more thing for us to do. But they recognize that that is not what their calling is. It was not that the apostles were incapable of adequately fulfilling the role of serving tables. It just wasn't desirable. It wasn't fitting. It wasn't appropriate. Jesus had commanded them to do exactly what they proposed to do here, to pray and to minister the word, to go and spread the gospel, to teach disciples. So they seek now to delegate the responsibility for this need, and they command the brethren to seek out from among you seven men. And in this, there's, there's a bit of knowledge for us to glean. First, leaders are called to fill real needs. The apostles' solution to the problem is to delegate. They said, choose out from among you seven men full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom, and we'll appoint them to do this work. Leaders are called to fill real needs. When God gives us problems, he also provides solutions. He doesn't leave us in the lurch. He promises to be our God. He promises to be our deliverer. He promises to save us. He provides solutions along with the problems he gives us. But solutions are not solutions until there is a problem. If you don't have a problem, what, what's the need of a solution? If you don't have a scratch, why do you need a Band-Aid? And this is kind of like what James teaches us when he tells us, count it all joy when we fall into various trials. At issue here is the need for faith. Problems and trials are opportunities in disguise. They give us the opportunity to exercise faith. To place the problem at Jesus' feet and ask him to deliver us. Problems and trials teach us to be patient. They cleanse us. They purify us. The way narrative works is that there has to be a neme nemesis to the protagonist. There has to be a problem to the solution. Superman needs his Lex Luthor. Batman needs the Joker. In the story of history, we wouldn't have a Winston Churchill without Adolf Hitler. When there are no wars or villains, there are also no victors or heroes. God made the world in such a way that every good story recognizes these truths. If you take away Satan, if you take away sin, and you take away evil, you take away Jesus Christ as Savior and Lord. If there were no need for these deacons, we wouldn't have the story of Stephen. More on that in the next few weeks. So the first thing we see is that leaders are called to fill real needs. It's an op a problem, a need is, is an opportunity in disguise. Second, the place to look for leaders is in our midst. 
When God gives us a need, he gives us an opportunity. But here we see that the opportunity is particular to the group who can, who can claim the problem. In this, we learn that God expects us to be proactive in our faith. We must be willing to stand up and say, here I am. Pick me. We must not be always looking to somebody else to fill the role. When you see a problem, when you see a need, look to see how you can fix it. Now this is not presumption. It's, it's not a, a, an exhortation to, to claim authority that you don't have. It's not an exhortation to go and do something you're not prepared for. It's an exhortation to be humble. There are standards. When, when, the, when the apostles call, tell them to call seven men, the seven men were called to be men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit and wisdom. What it means, what that means is that we should be active in the work of preparing ourselves to be fit for service. To be fit to serve. Our job as Christians is to live in humility and obedience to God's word, in wisdom to be filled with the spirit. So that when the time comes and the need arises, we may rise to the, God, to the occasion by God's grace. That we may take advantage of the opportunity God presents in the trial. This taking on of responsibility is a double-edged sword, though. There is potential for glory in God's service. In fact, that's the only place where there is potential for glory. It's in God's service. But in God's service, there's also a demand for sacrifice. That's be forewarned. If you're going to stand up and say, here I am, be ready to die for what God calls you to do. Nonetheless, by God's grace, Jesus' burden is light and his presence is sure. Even Stephen, when, 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 when God calls him to serve, and we're going to get into this in the next couple of weeks, but he goes and he proclaims the gospel, he's accused and he's, he's put on trial, and then he's stoned. In his, in his death, He's, he's seeing God. He's at peace with God. He has, he has power. He has glory. And this is because even though God calls us to do things that on our own would be impossible, He gives us everything we need to do them when He calls us to do them. A few times through this series I've mentioned how in the establishment of the church there are echoes of the exodus from the Old Testament. And it's similar in this instance. This is similar to the case of Moses and Jethro. When Jethro gave Moses advice to, to appoint leaders over the people to bear the burden of judging. In that narrative from Exodus 18, Jethro tells Moses to select able men, such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. That's what Jethro, Jethro told Moses, you, you can't do this all by yourself. You need, you need help, select able men such as fear God, men of truth, hating covetousness. And likewise here, the apostles describe the type of men they need in these positions of power. Men of good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, and wisdom. Also, like that event freed up Moses to better do his work, this event frees up the apostles to better do theirs. But as we shall see next week, the church is better than Israel was. These new deacons 
will be more than Moses' appointees were. And this is because the principle of mediation has changed in the New Testament from the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, Moses needed to be free so that he could intercede on behalf of the people, for the people. Here we see that these men are filled with the Holy Spirit. They don't need an intermediary. We no, no longer need Moses to intercede for us. We now have Jesus directly, straight. So when these new leaders receive the Spirit, they become direct mouthpieces of God. And more on that when we get, get to, to Stephen. For now, we see that the multitude is pleased with their instructions and immediately jump to take action. Verses 5 and 6. And the saying pleased the whole multitude, and they chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit, and Philip, Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, a proselyte from Antioch, whom they set before the apostles. And when they had prayed, they laid hands on them. So the apostles speak. And the church obeys. The apostles give a solution. The multitude rejoices and says, yes, sir. Just like when Jesus tells the apostles to witness, they say, yes, sir. And they do, and they get brought on trial, and God vindicates them. He delivers them. He, he proclaims the gospel there. The gospel spreads. So, like the apostles, the church has learned to be obedient. This faithful obedience is further evidence of the power of the Spirit in the Apostolic Church. Here we're introduced to Stephen, who, will be, who who's going to be taking up center stage in our, in our text for the next couple of weeks. And likewise, Philip the Evangelist will come up again in a little while. In this text, we learn the names of all the men chosen to fill the need of the church. Of note is that all these names are Greek. It's likely that these men were of the Hellenist portion of the church. And this would display great wisdom on the part of the early church and that it would uniquely qualify these men to answer to the particular problem for which they were appointed to address. Because they were Hellenists, they would be plugged into the needs of the Hellenists. The murmuring, the complaints were among the Hellenists because their widows were being overlooked. So now, because they've, they've, they've taken men from among them to be in leadership, men among them to serve tables, they would be plugged in to the needs of their group the way that the Hebrews, who had been doing the, the daily allotments, were plugged in to the Hebrew community's needs. And one more note, if you recall, the disciples had required that these men were filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. And this is worth taking a moment to consider. The duty to which these men were called was much more pragmatic than preaching, than the ministry of the word. This wasn't, that's, that was not, their calling was not to go preach. Their calling was to be here and serve. They, their job meant working with your hands and getting down to the nitty gritty of life. They'd be working with the poor and the lower classes. And there may be a temptation to think that th that, that office was demeaned, especially by comparison with the apostles, that they were called as a lesser office. But a better way to see it is they were just given a different calling. The apostles' job was to proclaim the word. 
to convert the nations. The, the deacon's job was to put the word into flesh, to show the people what it meant to live the way the apostles spoke. They would be, work, um, they would be working with the poor and the lower classes. And more than that, that's not all they ended up doing. Uh, Stephen did proclaim the gospel when he was brought on trial. But, but that was not his primary duty. And even if that call was all that they were called to, just to serve tables, and which may have well been the case for Prochorus, Nicanor, Timon, Parmenas, and Nicholas, we don't, we don't know anything more about them other than their names and that they were called to serve the church. We do know that Stephen and Philip were called to, to beyond uh, just service at the tables. But it was a high calling demanding the presence of the Holy Spirit. All of these men were called to be filled with the Holy Spirit and wisdom. To do the work of the church. To serve the poor and the needy. To, to show mercy. Demands the Holy Spirit. It demands or, ordination. Prayers. and The prayers of the apostles and the laying on of hands. These men were no mere butlers or waiters. They were princes in the kingdom of Jesus Christ. They were called to the hands-on work of the church. And next we see what God is doing in this text. We've looked at the problem. The widows were overlooked. We've looked at the solution. The apostles say, select men to do this work. And we looked at the church's obedience. They just did it. But now we get to see what God's work is. Verse 7. Then the word of God spread, and the number of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. And a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. What was the prerequisite to this growth in the church? What was it that, that made it possible for the word of God to spread and for the disciples to multiply. Faithful and orderly community in which the needs of the weaker were met by the body. Mercy, mercy ministry, faithful living out of what our gospel tells us to do. Unity and peace in the administration of the work of the church had the effect of spreading the gospel. And the numbers of the disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem. This is becoming a common refrain in Acts. Every time the gospel goes out. And every time God's people are called to submit to his will and go through a trial or an ordeal. And when they submit in faith and when they do as God asks them to do, the gospel goes out. It's multiplied. The word of God spreads. That's the kind of gospel we, we, we have. That's the kind of God we have. It's the kind of God who brings growth, organic and faithful and overflowing and abundant growth. But now we come to a rather interesting comment. It's that, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith. I wrestled with this at first. I thought, okay. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I guess you got multitudes coming, and it would come from all classes of, 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 the, of Jews. So why wouldn't there be priests that come to the faith? But why is that particularly included here? 
Why is it now that he makes it a point of saying, and a great many of the priests were obedient to the faith? At first it seems to come a little bit out of left field. But then when I stopped and thought about it, I I recognized uh, three things. First, these guys, the priests, had front row seats to the work of the apostles in the temple. The job of the priests meant that they worked in the temple. They did sacrifices there. They cleaned. They, they took care of the temple. That was their job. It was their livelihood. So they had front row seats to, to, the, to the, the witness of the apostles in the temple. Remember the Christians were meeting daily in the temple. In Solomon's porch. They were healing sick people. They were preaching Jesus. And they were preaching the forgiveness of sins. And, and I'm sure that they, they, the priests would have been wrestling with what's going on here. They're seeing the power of God. They're seeing people being healed. The, the, this gospel that is free forgiveness of sins, and, and, and their job was to kill animals to forgive sins. But they would have heard the gospel. They also would have seen or heard about both trials, the miracles, and the proclamations of Jesus' judgment against those who murdered him. Remember, every time the gospel comes into, into conflict or into the presence of unbelievers, it always brings with it an accusation of guilt. Here were the priests, the servants of the living God, the people who were the intermediaries between the God of Judaism, Jehovah, and the Jews. And now they're the ones who are being accused of uncleanliness, of murder. And so, the, so, so these guys had a front row seat to this. And, and, and then, second, the priests were closely tied to the Sadducee, the Sadducee party. Remember that the high priests, were, they, were, they were Sadducees. Um, in this, they would have ties to the Hellenists in Jerusalem. They would have been keenly interested in the church's resolution of the dissent between the Hebrews and the Hellenists. More so because they probably had to deal with this very problem, this very same problem themselves in their own distribution in the temple. The mass exodus here recorded, a great many of the priests were obedient to their faith. This mass exodus is probably an indication that their attempts to bring peace to the Hellenists and the Hebrews had not been as effective as the churches was. They had not succeeded in establishing peace and harmony between these two groups, between the Hellenists and the Hebrews, between the, the Pharisees and the Sadducees. In fact, the infighting within the various sects of Judaism was particularly nasty and egregious if, if, if Josephus is to be given any credit. Josephus wrote The Wars of the Jews. He talks about the different factions within the Jews. And, and they were, it was, it was ugly. It was, simply put, it was ugly. So, so the priests would have, would have heard, they would have heard the gospel. They would have seen this fruitful, uh, the, the fruitful effect of the gospel in the life of the church. The peace and harmony, the community of the believers. And third, and related to the, the last point, the content of this text has to do with diaconal work. The work of the service of the church. In the Old Testament, there were three offices which were ordained. Prophet, priest, and king. The three offices. Prophets were preachers. Kings were rulers. But the priest's labor was largely diaconal. 
They perform the table service of the temple. The witness of the church's peace and growth and power was enough to draw them to Christ. The fact that when the church encounters the problems of diaconal work and overcomes them with such great glory, they recognize that there is power in Christ that they don't have in their system. At the same time, their conversion as a group, as a mass exodus, is a flashpoint to incite the leaders of the temple violently and vehemently against the church. Imagine the Sadducees, the high priests, and the rulers of the temple. And now their disciples, the ones that they're close to, are, are leaving in droves. They were not happy about that. And we'll get into that more in the next couple weeks in the trial coming against Stephen. Suffice it to say that the gospel grew powerfully, gracefully, and effectively at the faithfulness of the apostles the first deacons, and the multitudes of new believers. Praise God. Let's pray. we saw that God calls men to his service. He wants us to follow him and do his work on his behalf. One of the central tenets of that is that we must be willing to stand up and serve when we are called. Another aspect is that that service is sacrificial. In our text this morning, that meant that the apostles had to stoop down and address the issues of the foreign widows. For us, Jesus comes down from heaven to meet us. In him, we are called to stoop down to serve others particularly the weak and the helpless. Jesus took on flesh and got into the nitty-gritty of our lives so that he could lift us up. True faith, pure religion is that. Get dirty to serve others. Do the dishes, change the diapers, unplug the toilets, visit the helpless, love them, wash their feet. It is what Jesus did and what he calls you to do. The glory of this is that we are not defiled in stooping down. Rather, in death, we are lifted up. God is glorified, and we are honored. Christ's body, broken for us. Let us pray. Thank you for listening to these excerpts from the worship service of Christ Church of Livingston County. If you would like further information about anything in these messages, the Bible, about Christ Church of Livingston County, or wish to make any other related inquiry, please feel free to contact Pastor Dirk DeWinkle through our website, ChristKirkMI.com. That's C-H-R-I-S-T-K-I-R-K-M-I.com. Again, thank you and blessings.